0: Hello everybody. Welcome to the It's a Brain Thing podcast. Today we will be going through our third book club episode, which is chapter 2, part 2 of Dr. Mona Della Hooks Beyond Behaviors. As you'll remember from last episode, I did not realize how intense it was, and when I got to the last big chunk of it, I felt like we had already gone through too much and that people had enough to kind of think about and chew on. So, We are going to be doing the second part today, and this morning I sat down and started listening to it, and I decided that I was going to re-record it, because I I didn't like certain elements of my voice. I I note that when I am stressed or under pressure as I go on and I talk, my voice develops this quality of... Intentional say. So, the bummer of listening to my voice is that I hear those things. So, I want to continue this topic in a more regulated state. I got my work done. I have nothing else to do other than to record and edit the podcast. So, I am ready to go. Just our episode reminder that nothing I am saying is endorsed by Dr. Delahook. This is just a book club that I want to do in depth to help everybody understand a big part of the complexity of challenging behaviors for children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and really a lot of other situations. But this is all through my lens, and so again, nothing I'm saying is endorsed by her. I also want to encourage everybody to purchase the book if they have not done so already as a way to support Dr. Della Huck. maybe consider giving it to a professional if you're if you're not going to have time to actually read it and you just want to listen to the podcasts I just think it's really important that we support her and I want to continue to encourage us to do so. And today we're going to be talking about some potentially intense subjects, so I just want to put that warning out there for those of you who might be struggling. It might be something you want to wait until you're in a frame of mind to hear and absorb and take notes and do whatever you need to do. In part one of chapter two, we talked about several things, but we ended it on going through the developmental processes. And what these processes are looking at is given the tools that an infant's brain has, what can we expect their brain to start to be able to do throughout these processes or developmental stages? And of course, there's what's expected. And then there's what actually happens given things like neurodiversity or disability or something like trauma that we're going to continue to talk about, or stress, or something environmental. There's a lot of different things that will influence how these processes develop, are delayed, how they catch up, how they don't catch up. There's so many different things that can happen. Just to review the processes, when an infant is born, we want them to soon be able to regulate themselves and attend to the environment attention is not attention span in the way that we typically talk about it on this podcast. But when things are going on, the infant will notice it. And usually we we see this by their eyes will move in that direction, especially as they continue to develop. And it's in process one where neuroception is developed. So this idea that the baby is able to feel safe and regulated, that's safe neuroception. And so within the first few hours or days, the safe neuroception will start if a lot of different things are in play, like having a caregiver, not being distressed because of medical issues, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of things can happen. That means that their neuroception is not fully developed. And so then that will change the course of what we would expect to see in development. And in process one, when somebody is feeling unsafe, we call that unsafe neuroception. Process two is engagement and relating Process 3 is Purposeful Emotional Interactions. Process 4 is Shared Social Problem Solving. Process 5 is Creating Symbols and Using Words and Ideas. And Process 6 is Emotional Thinking and Building Bridges Between Ideas. Now those will not mean anything to anybody who has not listened to part 1, so that's one reason why you might want to listen to this in order. But just as a reminder, oftentimes what we try to do with kids who have challenging behaviors, reason with them threaten them, talk to them in in ways that are too complicated. They don't actually start to really develop those processes until process five and six. And so because for so many of these kids, there's an issue of neuroception in process one that has continued throughout their development and probably hindered the development of other skills because of that stress or because of that lack of safety. And when we say skills, we're talking about many different kinds of skills in terms of the brain, in terms of social skills in terms of relating to people, in terms of dealing with what's going on, but a lot of it is unconscious. So today, we are gonna go over the different pathways, and each of these is discussed much more throughout the book, so I definitely wanna encourage you to read it, but I would like for you, as we go through these different pathways, to think about where do you see your kid? Do you often see them on one pathway? Do you see them on two pathways? Do you often see them on three? There might be some where you notice that your kid has never, you've never noticed that they've displayed any quote unquote symptoms or signs of being on this pathway. Before you reject it, that's good to note because it's possible that some pathways don't apply, but also it's sometimes hard to tell because of what's going on. And these pathways are going to be really important because when we say them, that will indicate that a child is engaging in a certain type of response based on which pathway they are feeling. And Dr. Delahook points out that we don't want to use these colors in conversations with kids, at least not right away, because color systems traditionally have relied on this idea that one color is better than another. So we're going to have three colors, green, red, and blue. And the idea that you, quote unquote, want to be on green is kind of going to happen if we, if we use this system with kids, because that's, that's what they're used to, that the goal is to be on green. And if your goal is that they be on green, that's not what we're doing here. It's about us as the adults first communicating and understanding what's going on on a brain level. So it's not that it's better to be on green, it's that, oh, our child is on the green pathway right now, or they're on the blue pathway, or they're on the red pathway. Let's talk about what each of these are, some of the signs that you can look for if your child is on that, and what is important to know about each of these pathways. And just a warning, things are about to get brainy. Let's talk about the green pathway first. There is a worksheet on this on page 51 of the book. Now we're talking about polyvagal theory here, and the green pathway or the green physiological state is technically referred to as the ventral vagal system. And ventral vagal is referring to which processes are engaged to create this state of being. And this is essentially having safe neuroception. If you are feeling safe and you have the ability to regulate yourself that is what eventually allows our executive functioning skills as they start and continue to develop for about two decades to do so at their best if we're not feeling safe neuroception we're going to be on one of the other pathways and that will hinder executive functioning development presumably as well as multiple other areas of development especially if another pathway is happening in an ongoing fashion and again we want to go to different pathways if the situation calls for it But in the cases that we're talking about, we are talking about brain issues that cause a misperception. And we're going to be individualizing this. Don't black out anything. Make sure you can still see it and and still keep an eye out for it. And that, of course, will be what we would want you to do for the next week when kids are on the green pathway we're going to look for certain things maybe in their face unless there is a neurodiversity factor such as maybe autism going on they are going to look us in the eyes frequently their eyes are going to be bright and shiny they will look at objects uh, that are either unusual like so they'll notice things essentially or if an object makes a noise or just for whatever reason calls attention to itself they will look Their body is generally relaxed. If we're still in the infancy stage and we're witnessing the green pathway, their arms and legs move toward the center of their body frequently. And when we're talking about anybody, the general speed of their movements and the abruptness and smoothness of their movements will change a little bit. So they will go faster or slower, depending on the situation, but it it will do so appropriately. When somebody is in the green pathway, this is essentially a state of feeling safe, being soothed, and a big thing is the social engagement element of it, and that's one of the things we have to remember true safe social engagement happens in the green pathway. You can have social engagement while you're in another pathway and it it probably won't be very good or there will be some hostility to it or some other complicated factors. And that's usually what we're doing is we're engaging kids in conversations when they're in those states versus when they're in the green state and more able to use those skills. Their voice when they speak will likely be laughing. They'll have tone changes. Again, unless there's another factor like maybe a speech issue or part of their disability that creates more flat affect, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not on the green pathway. So those are some of the things. I don't want to list them all because again, I want people to use the book as a tool. But those are some of the things that we would look for on the outside. Again, every kiddo is different, so you're going to want to list out what you also notice when you picture your kid, or if, if they have periods right now where they're on the green pathway, list some of those things down. And she goes over various different areas, from what the face looks like, to how the voice sounds, to how the body is moving, to how the body is positioned. Those are all important and interesting factors that they're probably not even aware of and that we're often not aware of. So really take your time to develop your child specific list, whether we're talking about the green pathway, the blue pathway, or the red pathway. The green pathway, the information about what your child looks like is just as important as when we're not doing well. The green pathway is when we are feeling socially engaged and safe. So we're going to move then to the red pathway, which is generally speaking, the type of behaviors that I am called upon (laughs) in my job to address. And that is when we are not in a state of social engagement, but rather we're in a state of fight or flight. And this turns on when the brain senses danger, when your kiddo is mad at you, even a neurotypical kiddo, and they are having this emotional response and they're fighting you. And it's not just having an emotional response that they're expressing and they're getting it out, but like where they are arguing with you their brain is in this state of danger. Intellectually, they know that you're safe, but we know that the executive functioning system putting together all of that regulation and information is not in place when we have the red pathway. And that's assuming that we have the executive functioning skills in the first place to actually be engaged. That's often not the case when we're talking about kids who've been through trauma, kids with FASD, or just very young children in general. Some things we're going to look at. And their eyes, they're often going to be really wide-eyed or squinted or closed. Again, this is a fight-or-flight state. Their eyes are often going to quickly look around the room, especially if they're in a flight state. You might notice that their fingers are spread out or they're showing some kind of body tension. Maybe they're constantly moving. They might be engaging in what I call escalation-related behavior, so throwing things, property destruction, physical aggression. All those kinds of things can be happening and often are happening when a child is on the red pathway. Their voice, of course, will be loud, hostile, Sometimes we will see an element of out of control laughter uh, that really to me strikes me as overstimulation which is exactly what this book will continue to talk about and the facial expressions when people are on this mode are generally angry. They're not neutral occasionally they're smiled or there's like a forced smile or a sarcastic smile, depending on maybe the level of escalation. But generally speaking, people look angry. Now you might be saying, well, I know my kid might be struggling, but they don't show anger. They struggle in a different way. So we're going to see if what you're thinking about is maybe the blue pathway. But I want to say a few more things about the red pathway. We move on to the red pathway when we sense danger. And again, that's a good thing. But because of the faulty neuroception issue that we talked about, which is our kid sensing danger when it shouldn't, because maybe the early developmental processes were not fully developed, then our kids are constantly going onto the red pathway. This is very, very common. And so again, what happens is adults look at the outward behaviors. They look at the rudeness. They look at the sarcasm. They definitely look at the non-compliance, right? They look at the behavior on the surface, but they're not thinking about what physiological state is the person I am interacting with in right now. And that's hard to do, but it's really what we got to start learning if we are going to engage with these kinds of kids and if we want to engage with them well and actually develop a relationship. You're never just having a conversation. Every interaction, ideally, (laughs) will be pre-thought out a little bit on the adult's part or on the supporter's part, which is, okay, before I go in there and just start talking, what do I need to look for? Maybe I'm going to look to see which pathway they're on. Maybe I'm going to not go in there and just start asking questions. I'm just going to sit there and connect with them a little bit. Those are things you have to think about, but we often don't. And when I say we, I mean parents and I mean professionals because everyday situations are fast moving and the systems are not set up for this kind of support, even though it's what people need, especially people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And we have to be very clear. You can't connect with somebody when they are actively in this mode. Even if you're trying to be sympathetic, their immediate response Even sometimes the sympathy itself, because it's happened so many times and the brain is picking up on these patterns of supposed danger due to faulty neuroception, the very sympathy could be sending further threat signals to their brain, right? And so then they'll continue to remain in the red pathway. For example, maybe you're being nice, but you're still trying to get them to comply. So they're not in a state where they can feel safe releasing control, quote unquote control, of that situation to you, right? And I say control very hesitantly because I generally avoid using that term. But if you're trying to still get them to do something and their brain is in this danger state, the brain will resist. And that will come out as leave me alone, right? A communication attempt or maybe a behavior if they have tried and you're not honoring that. Maybe you're being sympathetic, but you're trying to get them to work on a solution, which is too cognitively advanced for the vast majority of people when they're on the red pathway. So this would be like if, if you're familiar with CPS, which is Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, it would be like trying to have a plan B conversation in the moment of escalation. And what most of us know is it doesn't work and it doesn't work for anybody. This is not just kids with specific challenging behaviors, when your body is experiencing the red pathway physiological response, it shuts pretty much everybody down. Another issue why immediate interaction will potentially be a hindrance to you, even if your child does ultimately need to connect with you to regulate, that immediate talking or interaction could be part of the faulty neuroception itself or just be too much of a distraction from the regulation they need to be able to have that kind of conversation. So they're, they're essentially too mad to even problem solve. And so then being frustrated and saying, well, nothing's good for them. They're not wanting to problem solve it. They're not listening to what I'm saying. No. No we have to think, where are they at? And that's how I've been phrasing it, which is we have to have proactive conversations or we have to plan together proactively. But another way to say that when we're thinking about this model is, we wanna wait until they're on the green pathway to have any kind of proactive conversation. And even then, of course, we have to make sure that how we are planning with them is even reasonable and that we're doing it in a way that works for their brain. The last pathway we're gonna talk about is the blue pathway and that's called the dorsal vagal pathway. And this is essentially a freeze mode. And of course, we're talking about the brain. So everything is simplified. How we go between these states is also simplified. And this would be the pathway that I think a lot of parents would immediately dismiss and say doesn't apply. But I really want us to think about if there are times where maybe it does, because it's absolutely possible for these kids to frequently go on both pathways. What do we look for in somebody who's in this quote-unquote freeze mode? We're looking for signs of shutting down. Their body is literally being triggered to shut down. This could be immediately or this could be after an ongoing experience in the red pathway, potentially, you know, as things escalated and and have not quote unquote, worked for the brain, this could be an alternative response for some kids. Generally speaking, the kids that I work with who the blue way applies, it really applies though. So we're seeing it pretty often. What we're looking for is generally lack of eye contact. And we're not talking about in a neurodiverse kind of way, which would be an autistic person who will generally avoid contact. We're not talking about that. We're talking about there is a level of fear there or lack of ability to socially engage that they cannot look at you. That their brain is seeing you as a danger or seeing looking up as a danger or seeing not doing what it's doing as a danger. And so they continue to do it. They will resist responding to you if you touch them They might, you know, they might just move away. They might flop down. They're often going to seem drowsy or tired. They might have a flat affect, which is their face is turned down or flat or blank. And again, this might happen for reasons that are not because of this. So we got to remember that. But if your child usually is expressive, when they're when they're on the green pathway, this would be a sign to look for. It's the contrast a lot of the time. The voice is often flat. They will generally not talk. If they are forced to speak, they'll be soft or cold or too quiet to hear. And generally speaking, their body movements are slow. And so comparing a lot of those to the red pathway, in a lot of ways, they're quote-unquote opposite, as opposed to being fast movements, jerky movements, constant movements it is opposite when somebody's in freeze mode. Instead of intense glaring eyes and negative and engagement or fleeing darting kind of eyes, it's just complete avoidance. And I see this triggered a lot very, very easily just when parents want to have a conversation. And I think because conversations if they're not being supported in general, even if there's no stressful discussion being had, if they're just overwhelming on some level, a level of stress gets assigned to that by the brain and what I'm seeing with kids with faulty neuroception is it really doesn't take a specific kind of stress to set off the faulty neuroception it's any kind of stress any kind of bodily physiological response is is triggering this and so it's it's a bunch of different cues including the cue of stress itself if that makes sense that triggers this and that might not be completely right that's just my sense so if there's anybody who has an opinion on that I would I would love to hear it Dr. Delahook mentions that we sometimes Times overlook the children who engage in these blue pathway behaviors because they're not being as overt as those kids who are in fight-or-flight who are on the red pathway and that's absolutely true and a lot of times it looks like compliance if the issue is you need to sit and be quiet at the desk and just by doing that you become invisible that's what a lot of these kids do they may not even look particularly distressed but they're not catching on any of the information because it's either too complicated or because they're in a state of faulty Neuroception. And so these are the three different pathways which apply to everybody, but which our children who are represented by the listeners in this podcast, they experience it a lot more because of faulty neuroception. And so we're now kind of seeing how all of these terms are starting to solidify together. Faulty neuroception, developmental process, red and blue pathways. And I am very confident that as you are reading about these pathways and or listening on the podcast that you are definitely noting things that either you yourself do that maybe your spouse does or definitely that your children engage in. And I don't want to spoil the rest of the book, but what we have to do then is help these kids and really help their brains reestablish what these cues are, learn regulation skills, and the place that that has to begin is connection with the adult that is interacting with them. And so that means that we have to have an adult interacting with them who knows how to recognize and keep them on the Green Pathway. Who knows how to recognize when they're on the red pathway and respond in the way that will maintain connection and then regulation and then the blue pathway of course they need to recognize if that's a factor and how they need to respond in that situation when I think of the teachers I have heard talk about students and the stories I've heard from parents, there are so many misunderstandings about who these children are and what they've been through. And I get it because they do not look sympathetic so much of the time. But the reality is, if you're a teacher and you're struggling with a student who's who we're talking about, you're dealing with a kiddo who has been probably through multiple teachers like you before, who goes through life interacting with people in a way that demands too much for them and who probably experienced a lot of stuff before they came into your life. And so these immediate negative responses to demands or to instructions or to any kind of stress or firmness of tone that seems so overdramatic they make sense, given what we know about how the brain adapts to these kind of stressors. And given what we know about how the systems, including the system that you are in and the system that I'm in, but the school system is very, very stressful and it, doesn't, it is not considering, by and large, the idea of neuroception. And we do not fund schools seriously enough to truly take the steps they would need to anyway. And so if we have a kid going to school every day, or if they're at home every day and their faulty neuroception is constantly being triggered, especially by interactions, which is often the case, then we cannot expect them to be able to regulate their behavior. You cannot regulate your behavior in the red or blue pathway, because to regulate your behavior, you need executive functioning. And so another thing that's going to mean is that not only are we going to need to help this person build a sense of neurosafety and develop the emotional regulation and executive functioning skills on that end, we're going to have to be flexible with them in the meantime. It's going to take time for those cues of safety to be built and for our connection with them to fully form. So there are going to be times even after the connection starts, even after you're feeling good about this, that they're going to say something that hurts your feelings. That's why it's very important that we have a plan that we can follow that allows us to continue to tell them, hey, even if you're struggling right now, I'm safe. And now we're going to follow a plan to get you regulated again, which we know means I'm following a plan to get you on the green pathway, because that's where we obviously know that the social connection is going to happen more. If you respond in the way the vast majority of people respond to these kinds of behaviors, even the ones who are trying to be nice, but verbally, with continued demands, with more and more hostility as the power struggle unfolds, you are only establishing further cues that will lead to stress down the road. And that's how relationships with these kids are either broken, oftentimes immediately, so it only takes one negative interaction for this kid not to want to be around you anymore, and so another displacement to another classroom or another foster home or wherever, Or how these relationships get strained, maybe over time. And so eventually, even though things start off well, if we establish these negative interactions and we add stress and we think about how neuroception works and how development works, you approaching them one day might just lead to them getting stressed. When you're not even saying anything, that is what they're going to start to pick up on. So as we're going to talk about as we go throughout the book is this idea of co-regulation and that's what that's what you have to do is when somebody is either on the red or the blue pathway you have to help them co-regulate and that's what we do with infants that's part of what we have to do together as people to even have the skills of regulation begin to develop and so for a lot of kids that is what they were missing. Obviously, we're not going to have a 12 or 13 year old sit in our lap and hold them like a baby. But the sense of safety and the connection and doing things with them, all of those things that Dr. Delahook will continue to talk about with us, those are the things that establish the safety. So maybe someday down the road when they're ranting and raving at you about something and you say something to them, they might actually immediately stop or they might calm down a lot quicker. Okay, so that is the last part of chapter two. I hope it was interesting for you. I will talk to you guys very soon again with chapter three. Have a great week and stay safe.